Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so today Amanda is going to lead the discussion on rotator cuff repairs. So we'll just let you go ahead and take it away, Amanda. So most of this information we're going to pull from the Shoulder Current Concepts book. A lot of it starts on page 30, kind of a continuation after our last podcast episode on scapular work. So beginning on page 30, they talk about some of the surgical approaches to rotator cuff repairs. We're going to touch on this. I don't know that it's the most crucial information, but I think when you're reading operative reports, surgical notes, that kind of thing, it's important to be aware of. Um, Surgical techniques for this have really improved over the past 10 to 15 years, which are now allowing for accelerated rehab protocols. So now most of them are being done um, arthroscopically. Very few are being done open. I think the open ones I have seen in the last five years have really been um, where the subs gaps involved. I don't know, Alexis, do you ever see any open repairs anymore? No, I can't even remember the last time. Yeah, so most of them are arthroscopic. That's pretty much what you're going to see. Um, but the current concepts, you know, they know, and I want to make sure we know that this is a general overview of surgical guidelines. It is not any kind of surgeon-specific protocol. I'd say that these guidelines really follow those basic tissue healing properties. So if you're not familiar with those phases of tissue healing, that's definitely something I would review because that's the basis of most protocols. But there are some surgeons that have differences in their protocols. So if you're working with different surgeons, you just need to make sure you're very aware if they have any differences. And sometimes that's a better way to phrase it, you know message the surgeon and say, I'm planning on following a traditional rotator cuff protocol, unless you have any differences you'd like me to be aware of um, based on the surgery. Um, So just be aware of that. The first thing we're going to talk about are different types of tears. Full thickness tears refer to tears that compromise the entire thickness or the depth going from top to bottom of the tendon. These often begin in the supraspinatus, and then they will progress to include the infraspinatus, the teres minor, and the subscapularis. Subscap tendon tears are often accompanied by a subluxation of the long head of the biceps in the intertubricular groove or a partial or complete tear of the bicep tendon from that um, translation of the humeral head. Incomplete or partial thickness tears um, typically occur on the um, bursal side or the articular side. Um, It kind of depends the mechanism of injury here. So the bursal side, meaning the superior side, and the articular side, meaning the undersurface side of the rotator cuff. Near and Faduca um, state bursal side tears are the result of subacromial impingement. So I think you're probably going to see those ones a little bit more often, just because subacrom- the presence of subacromial impingement um, is, is more common. These are, those types of tears are generally going to be associated with that primary and secondary compressive Um, disease that we talked about in our last couple episodes. Those undersurface tears are generally associated with the tensile load and the joint instability. And those are going to be more common in your overhead athletes or those that are performing overhead manual work or activities. So just be aware of that. If you're unclear about those different types of rotator cuff disease, I would um, encourage you to reference a couple podcast episodes ago where we went over those. Um, They're outlined well in the current concepts also. So the reason tear type and tear size is so important to understand is because it affects the progression of the rehabilitation rate. So full thickness tears are um, categorized into five different, sorry, four different groups. 
Um, small tears are less than a centimeter. Medium tears are one to three centimeters. Large tears are three to five centimeters. And massive tears are greater than five centimeters. Sometimes I see that documented. Sometimes I don't. I think there's a little bit of variability there, you know, depending on what source you get that from. I'm not sure surgeons follow, every surgeon follows exactly that same scale. But know that if it's a massive tear, the, the rehab rate is going to be much slower than a small tear. Typically, that information will be available in an operative report or in a radiology report. Sometimes you'll see it documented there. Larger tears are also going to go through a longer period of immobilization. So they're going to be in a sling longer, probably closer to that six-week mark. Smaller tears, I think a lot of surgeons are starting to let them out in that two- to four-week mark, depending. So moving into the next page, page 31, um, there's a lot of emphasis in this section about the operative specifics and the techniques that they use and stuff. Again, I don't know that this is the most crucial information, but it's something to be aware of. So tear success is largely due to the correct anatomical fixation. So how successful the patient's going to do in rehab comes a lot from whether or not the surgeon's able to get the appropriate length tension relationship. Sometimes that's the skill of the surgeon. Sometimes that has to do with tendon quality. Sometimes that has to do with the traumatic nature of an injury or the length since the injury. You know, if someone tears a rotator cuff and they go in much longer after the injury to try to repair it and they've had more retraction, um, fraying of the tendon, they're not going to have as much success with getting that length tension relationship. So sometimes if you feel like you're getting a block in rehab, it may be because that patient doesn't have an optimal length tension relationship with the repair. So when we talk about complete tear patterns, you have a crescent-shaped and a U-shaped. Crescent-shaped tears typically do not retract far from the greater tuberosity and are usually able to be reattached right back to the greater tuberosity without too much difficulty. U-shaped tears um, have the greatest extent of tearing in the longitudinal direction of the tendon generally require a little bit more work when you're talking about surgical repair. The other thing they talk about in current concepts is the suture placement, and this is really variable in the research. So sometimes I see this documented in an operative note or a post-op note. Um, they talk about single row versus double row. It's thought that double row repairs may be able to maximize the load per suture ratio and the best fixation placement However, studies say that there's no significant difference in the clinical outcomes. So the reason that they would do a double row, typically you're going to see that in a more um, significant tear, but they, the goal is to get each one of those anchors to share the load of the tendon the same. You know, you don't want to have two or three anchors carrying more of the load than two others. So trying to even that out can be very challenging for the surgeon, um, but the best success is going to come if you can even that out. Most importantly, though, is how securely the sutures are tied, um, and that obviously comes from surgical skill. I don't know that you're going to see that documented, um, but that's really what research says, says in terms of suture placement and how successful the postoperative rehab can be. Do you have anything, Alexis, on surgery before we move into postoperative rehab? No, nothing, nothing to add. Okay. So moving on page 32 into the rehabilitation phases following arthroscopic rotator cuff repair. I want to bring your attention to table one of the shoulder current concepts book. And that's in edition four, that's on page 33 to 34. And they reference this um, table and for medium sized tears. So keep in mind that obviously that's going to change for a smaller tear versus a massive tear. 
again, this is a general outline. They make these recommendations based on those phases of tissue healing. A surgeon may have something different to add. So the initial rehabilitation is going to focus on gaining passive range of motion to prevent those capsular adhesions while protecting the repair. So again, some protocols have specific guidelines on what specific passive range of motion the surgeon wants. Some surgeons want limited internal and external rotation at certain weeks in that first phase. Um, so just be aware of that. Not all surgeons say all passive range of motion is good. So moving into some specifics with rehabilitation, um, studies, EMG studies tell us that compared with tension in a position of neutral rotation, um, positions of 30 degrees and 60 degrees of external rotation actually show a decrease in tension and muscle activity within the supraspinatus. Um, in contrast, 30 and 60 degrees of internal rotation show increased tension with the supraspinatus, which is interesting because oftentimes the supraspinatus is what's repaired. And if you think about the resting position that patients have in their sling, they all come in in that kind of um, forward posturing with their arm right in front of them into increased internal rotation. And that's where sometimes those pillows can really help us get to a little bit more neutral posture because when patients are hanging out in that much internal rotation, they're actually putting more tension on the tendon than if they were in a little bit of external rotation. Um, I also think it's interesting because I've seen some surgeon protocols too that um, suggest limited external rotation after a repair. Um, and I, you know, sometimes there's other work that's done that contributes to that, but truly just a standard supraspinatus repair really shouldn't have a lot of external rotation limitations because you're actually decreasing the tension on that tendon. So just be aware of that um, in terms of how long they're spending in their sling and what position, you know, are they wearing their sling properly? Does it fit properly? That kind of a thing. Current concepts also suggest that a significantly higher load was present in the supraspinatus tending during humeral head rotation in the sagittal plane as compared with both the frontal and scapular planes. Therefore, um, it's recommended that early passive range of motion is performed in um, scapular plane when you're doing internal and external rotation. This is going to decrease that tensile load on the repaired tendon. I also think, too, just in terms of clinical experience, patients are more comfortable in the scapular plane um, than they are truly in the uh, sagittal plane. So I don't know, Alexis, do you typically mobilize or range into the scapular plane at first? We talked yeah. some about this in the other episode, but. Yeah, I do. I definitely do. And I think it's just more comfortable for yeah. the patient too. They're going to relax a little bit better for you there. Yeah. Um, I think most of us have probably seen rotator cuff repairs and would agree with that. Um, but basically we're going to talk more about internal external rotation here and internal rotation performed at 30 and 60 degrees of elevation placed an increased tension in the inferior most portion of the infraspinatus. So that's something to be aware of if they also had some infraspinatus repair done or any kind of debridement there, that tissue is going to be a little bit more irritable if you're moving them into 30 and 60 degrees of elevation. So I think when it comes with working in the scapular plane, you just need to be careful about how much you're actually elevating them into those motions. Um, you know, I think if we work in a scapular plane and you don't have great body mechanics as the therapist, you might be drifting into those 30, 60 degree planes that could really be aggravating to that infraspinatus. So I think just being aware of what position you're in and trying to get the patient as comfortable as possible while maintaining um, the less of the internal rotation and more of the external rotation to prevent that increased tensile load. So the research is a little bit mixed um, is to the degree of muscular activation that occurs during commonly used rehab exercises in this first phase. 
So I think, you know, we all have our favorites. We all try to get as passive motion as possible. Sometimes that's hard with the amount of guarding that the patient has. Um, but they, the current concepts on page 32 talks a lot about different studies that look at those common exercises. So I'm going to summarize those. Um, there's a study by McCain et al. that provides um, clear information to the degree of muscular activation of the supraspinatus during supine-assisted range of motion exercises and seated elevation with the use of a pulley, so your standard pulley exercises. They say that both activities produce low levels of inherent muscle activities in the supraspinatus. However, the upright pulley activity produces significantly more muscle activity as compared with the supine activities. So I think that's just something to be aware of. You know, I think we're all guilty of using pulleys quite a bit. Um, and that may or may not be the best thing. I think some of it's too, because the patient's sitting, I question how relaxed a lot of patients are, especially in those first few weeks doing pulleys. Um, I like pulleys a little bit later, but sometimes when you have a patient in supine, they can just relax a little bit better. And I think inherently that can decrease the muscle activation. Um, another study by Ellsworth, um, looked at muscular activation during Codman's pendulum exercises. And this study showed minimal levels of muscle activation in the rotator cuff during pendulums. However, the exercise cannot be considered completely passive because the musculature is truly activated based on the EMG information, um, especially in individuals with shoulder pathology. So a lot of times these people that have cuff repairs have been dealing with shoulder pain for some period of time before surgery, and they're hyper aware of what their shoulder feels like. They've learned to guard. They have that maybe elevated shoulder posturing because it's so guarded. You know, they have a lot of upper trap activity, um, minimal scap activity. And in these folks, those pendulum exercises may be even more activation than someone who doesn't have a shoulder pathology. So just be aware of that when you're prescribing those couple passive exercises. Um, like I said, page 33 and 34 is that table. And they break it up into those classic phases of weeks one to two, three to six, six to eight, and week eight, 10. And then they go to three months and four months out. By then, most of your patients should be doing pretty well. So another EMG study that talks about exercise um, specifics um, supported therapist-assisted external rotation and elevation for patients following shoulder surgery because the level of muscular activity inherent in these maneuvers facilitates early joint motion and mobilization without the musculotendinous unit activation above baseline, above their standing posture. So baseline is considered whatever the muscle activation is with someone just comfortably standing. Um, but what they're basically saying here is therapist-assisted. So your manual passive range of motion is going to be truly pretty passive. There's no activation in that muscular tendinous unit above what would be already standing. So if you're not doing passive manual passive range of motion on your rotator cuffs in that first phase, it very likely should be because it's one of the few things that can be truly passive. So rehab exercises in the first two to four weeks following a cuff repair typically consist of truly passive as well as several minimally active assistive exercises. And I think some of that is clinical judgment, you know, based on those EMG studies that I just went over. You know, if you have a patient that's minimally guarded, they had a small tear, they're four weeks out, three weeks out, and they're doing well, I don't think there's any problem with doing pulleys. I think you just have to make sure that their mechanics are right and they're truly relaxed enough to not be getting muscular activation of that muscular tendons unit that was repaired. You know, if they're sitting there and they're getting elevation of the whole shoulder and you have them do that for four minutes on pulleys, I mean, that could be 40 times that you've just irritated that tendon. Um, the researchers also suggest early scapular stabilization. Um, they suggest using manual resistance, um, just 
you know, no resistance, um, longer hold times, potentially working towards bands. I don't think that's probably surprising to anyone. Like I was saying, I feel like most of my rotator cuff repair patients come in and they're kind of in that forward shoulder position, that arms very adducted. They're all the way across their body in internal rotation. They're kind of in that closed position, working on just getting them upright and working on the position of their sling at first can really actually decrease their pain over time. They think they're protecting it, but really I question if that sometimes increases their symptoms and guarding. I don't know, Alexis, do you have anything on um, scap exercises or positioning that you work on right away after cuff repairs? Um, I mean, typically I'll talk with them for sure about just kind of that postural awareness and taking their sling off at home and, and doing even just like some scap squeezes and sitting up tall and doing some chin tucks and that sort of thing. So just that general awareness of, Hey, you're kind of going to be just encouraged to be slumped forward when you're in this sling. So let's counteract that and explaining the importance of it. Cause obviously doing like scap squeezes and stuff seems a little silly to a lot of these patients, but if you can explain why you're doing it and and how that's going to progress, generally they'll be a little more compliant with that. So. Sure. I agree. Um, The other study in here that they talk about looked at doing distal upper extremity activity after these repairs. Um, I think that's something that a lot of, actually I see a lot of surgeons give patients to start on before they even get into outpatient therapy. A lot of my patients come in and they say, oh, I've been working on my elbow and my wrist and I've been doing my hand squeezes. And and that's all good because research tells us that rotator cuff muscles are less than 10% of their MVC using both slow and fast elbow flexions. And movements at the wrist and fingers were less than 5% of the MVC of the rotator cuff. And that tells us that it's pretty safe to be doing, you know, elbow flexion extension when they're out of the sling, sitting down, working on some grip to keep swelling out of the hand, um, working on some wrist flexion extension just to keep their hand moving um, to prevent atrophy can be really helpful. So, and you're really not going to affect their cuff repair. Those are pretty safe exercises. I think the other large debate that they kind of open up in this current current concepts book. And I feel like I hear about a lot and is going back and forth is do we early mobilize or late mobilize? Um, you know, do we go through, or I'm sorry, early, yeah, early mobilize or late mobilize. And is there any rationale for a longer period of immobilization? Systematic reviews tell us that there's insufficient evidence to provide an evidence-based conclusion or a recommendation regarding a timeline of immobilization, um, versus early passive range of motion for rotator cuff rehabilitation. Now, Early advocates of the passive range of motion following surgery cite that the most common complication after these surgeries is postoperative stiffness. Um, And that if we get these patients moving early, that that's really prevented. Um, Opponents of this cite the high incidence of re-tear. So when we talk about early postoperative passive range of motion, I think the thing that gets us into trouble is some therapists are just too aggressive. Early passive range of motion is not active assistive and active exercises. So if you're getting a patient that's early passive range of motion, it's got to be truly passive based on those exercises that we just talked about. Um, And I think that's where sometimes surgeons have distrust in early range, early mobilization, because they feel like the therapy is going to be too aggressive. And if it was all truly passive, more surgeons might go for it. Um, Studies tell us, like I said, that there's no um, clinical difference long-term for 
the prolonged immobilization initially. Um, but those patients are probably going to come in a little bit stiffer. You know, if they're not coming in until four weeks or six weeks out of surgery, they're going to be a little bit stiffer. You're going to have to work a little bit harder to get their range of motion back. However, generally by that time, they don't have as much guarding. They're in a little bit less pain. They can tolerate a little bit more. That tendon's more healed. You know, they're a little further down the pipe. They can tolerate a little bit more activity. Um, I think in general, though, what you're going to find, and they talk about this in the current concepts, is that smaller tears, less involved tears, younger folks probably going to be a little bit more on the earlier side of mobilization. Those large and massive tears that you're talking three to over five centimeters of tearing that required <clears throat> double row suturing and anchoring, um, they're probably going to need a little bit longer of a mobilization. I think those folks too, you'll see them in the abduction pillows a little bit longer. Um, that's mostly been my experience. I don't know, Alexis, do you have anything on early versus passive, early versus delayed passive range motion? Um, no, I mean, I would say most of the patients that I've seen are early mobilization every now and then, um, you know, there's been particular surgeons in the area or whatever that prefer the late mobilization. Um, or like you mentioned, you know, sometimes if it's a massive tear or something and they just want them to heal a little bit longer. Um, so I think too, this kind of goes back to, again, that patient education. So we all know our patients talk to one another and, you know, you'll get the person who comes in, well, my neighbor had a rotator cuff repair and he started his therapy, you know, two weeks out, or he didn't start his therapy until six weeks out. So sometimes it's, you know, having that conversation of uh, an understanding, you know, okay, some surgeons prefer this. Sometimes it can depend on the tear. Sometimes it can depend on how your surgery goes. So, you know, I there's that variability. So being able to educate on that a little bit too, just so people understand you know, why they might've been early versus delayed compared to someone else they know. Right. Uh, I think that's something I've run into a lot. Agreed. And I think sometimes too, good surgeons will be able to tell if they think someone's going to be too aggressive and they let them into early mobilization and they feel like they're going to just dis ditch their sling and they're going to go back to work and they're going to be too aggressive. I feel like the surgeon will hold them back. Yeah. The reason that they are concerned about the patient's compliance. Um, so mm -hmm. that's something that communication with your surgeon can be very enlightening. Um, if yeah. you don't understand why the surgeon has them on delay, you know, if they're a small tear and the surgeon's worried they're not going to be compliant and you go and tell them they can be an early mobilizer, you know, that may be completely undermining what the surgeon's concerns are. So just being aware of why I think is really important. Yeah. Um, so moving into that next phase, kind of that progression to resistive exercises for these folks. You want to be looking at rotator cuff and scapular musculatures, and we're looking at that six weeks out of surgery. Six weeks is when you can kind of start that. Um, sometimes for those larger tears, you're looking at closer to eight weeks. Um, there's a lot of different exercises, okay? And there's a lot of different variations in terms of what we can do, and there's a lot of different stuff in the literature. It's based on several factors, okay? The factors are tear size, like I said, the type of tear they had. So did they have that crescent or U-shaped tear and how successful was the surgeon able to fix it? The tissue quality, you know, someone who's 40 and had a rotator cuff repair is going to have a lot different tissue quality than a 75-year-old weekend warrior who's still healthy, you know, good candidate for repair, but their rehab is going to be a little slower because their tissue quality wasn't the same. Um, any kind of other surgical issues that they ran into, and then the patient health status and age. So taking all those things into effect, you know, the same, you're not going to give the same resistive exercise all the time to a 40-year-old rotator cuff repair that you are a 75-year-old rotator cuff repair. So current concepts recommends the application of very low resistance levels in a repetitive format 
for safety and for relative protection of the repaired tissues. It's also going to improve local muscular endurance. So they suggest that using multiple sets of 15 to 20 rep repetitions is recommended, and that's been noted in several studies. It's going to improve the strength in the rotator cuff and the scapular stabilizing muscle. So if you're giving them high weight, low rep exercises for this, you're probably not targeting the rotator cuff enough. They're probably getting some kind of compensation there. Exercise patterns using shorter lever arms and maintaining the glenohumeral joint in positions of less than 90 degrees of elevation um, are theorized to reduce the risk of both that compressive irritation and the capsular loading um, issues that could cause a re-tear or could cause like a tendinopathy or just could cause irritation of the capsule and the tissues surrounding that. Um, additionally, the early focus on the rotator cuff and scapular stabilizers without emphasis on a larger prime mover muscles in the deltoid and the pec and the upper trap is recommended. It's going to minimize that unwanted joint shear. You're going to get back better mechanics. You know, you're not going to see them doing um, shoulder, you know, you're not going to see them elevating the whole shoulder complex. You're going to truly see some good scapular upward rotation when they're moving into elevation and they're going to get a better internal and external rotation muscle balance. So I think that's really important just to be aware of, make sure you're prescribing exercise appropriately for those patients. And that's outlined really, really well on page 35. So if that's something that's confusing to you or needs reviewed, certainly please feel free to send us a message, but it's also outlined well on page 35. So um, they, they don't talk a lot about really specific exercises because there's a lot of different ones and there's a lot of good ones. Um, but specific application for scapular stabilizers um, should focus on lower trap and serratus anterior. And there's, like I said, lots of different ways to prescribe those. Um, they have some pictures in here of a few exercises, but I don't know that there's one that you, you have to know more than another. Um, just be aware of what muscle groups are most important to be targeted. And that's for those folks for, it's going to be your scapular stabilizers of your lower trap and your serratus anterior. When we talk about progression from early manual resistive patterns to exercise patterns with elastic resistance and light dumbbells, um, you can't miss this part of rehab. It's important. It occurs closer to that um, eight to 10 week mark um, per the current concepts and what research tells us. I can't say I don't always, I can't say I always wait that long. There's a lot of times if patients are doing well, I don't see any contraindications to moving them a little bit quicker. I will, but you have to be doing so mindfully. Um, Studies show improvements in muscular strength and positive changes in scapulohumeral rhythm following six weeks of training using elastic resistance. And they suggest that the um, exercises using elastic resistance should emphasize retraction and external humeral rotation to optimize the scapular stabilization and promote that muscular balance. So a lot of this rehab really talks about getting a good muscular balance and restoring their mechanics. I think a lot of people, you know, we kind of talked about this in the impingement section. A lot of people develop these over time. It's this gradual process because they have poor mechanics and they don't have good scapular strength and they're overutilizing their delt. And so that led to their impingement, which then led to a partial cuff tear that they've now had repaired. We don't want them to go through this whole repair process and in two years have a re recurrent issue because they never actually got good mechanics back and they never restored proper muscle balance and strength. So more so than just purely strengthening rotator cuff, I think it's about getting that muscular strength and ba um, balance back for these patients because very few of them actually have it. So that's kind of really what they outline for rotator cuff repairs. Um, there, Like I said, there are some pictures between 
these few pages that we talked a lot about in the um, talking about the impingement episode and what exercises are better than others and positional changes and all of that. So I would encourage you to listen to that one again or review that. Um, but other than that, there's not too many other specifics about cuff repairs. Do you have anything, Alexis, before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think, you know, like you mentioned in the beginning, there's always going to be some variability when it comes to the surgeon. So I think it's just important to make sure, um, you know, to keep those relationships positive that you either have a copy of their protocol or you at least reach out to their office and say, hey, is there something you want me to follow? Um And if they say no, I think we've all seen enough of them that you probably have a pretty good idea, but just making sure you have an idea of whether that surgeon, because I've seen some, you know, odd little things that specific surgeons want you to do or definitely don't want you to do. So I think just making sure that we're aware and 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 keeping that positive communication. Agreed. I've never had a surgeon upset that I asked him something like that. I think the other thing to be aware too, and I've been guilty of this in the past, you know, even when you're seeing a lot of rotator cuff repairs from the same surgeon, you think, you know, you think they're of their protocol. The more I've become aware of that and in tune with different, you know, protocol variations, there's differences based on the patient, even within the same surgeon. So it never hurts to ask if you're unsure. Mm -hmm. Um, I think too, just understanding like these are not all the same. You know, kind of how I feel about total joints. I think some therapists just fall in the category of they give the same exercises to their total joints and the same exercises to their rotator cuff repair. Yeah, there's good exercises, but it really should be patient-focused. Not all patients, even though they have the same surgery, come in with the same issue. And I think just being aware of that is going to make you a better clinician, and that's what sets you apart as like an orthopedic specialist is that you're able to identify that and make corrections or adjustments to a, a standard plan accordingly. Yep, I agree. So, um, last episode I shared, there's a couple, um, OCS med bridge, um, shoulder courses, and I shared those in the show notes. There's really just two of them and they kind of cover a lot of the different things. There's a few electives. I think one of them's the adhesive capsulitis CPG that we went over in one of our first episodes. So, um, I will continue to link those in the show notes as we go through different shoulder, um, diagnoses just so that they're easily accessible for everyone. Um, and if you have questions about those courses, you can definitely send us an email or you can reach out to MedBridge, but I'll continue to link those in the show notes. Um, and then the next t- episode, we'll be talking about shoulder instability um, and labral repairs. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. I don't have anything to add. All right. So as always, just shoot us an email if you have any questions, but otherwise, thank you very much. Thanks.